Thank you, Liz. Always fun doing this with you. <coughs> it is. It absolutely is. So in the late 90s, I had an opportunity to go to Zambia, which is southeastern Africa, for over three weeks of summer. Uh, an incredible opportunity. Uh, so a family, we prayed, said, yeah, we'll, we'll go. I was invited to go. But my, what, that meant my wife would remain home uh, working and caring for uh, about them. Uh, our son was 14, our daughter was 10. And communication then, because I was in Zambia, when the Internet was working and when in the over three weeks I had a chance to stop and be at a computer that was working and was connected to the Internet, I could see if they sent me an email, which was hard because, again, Susan was busy caring for the kids. And, and, but it was, it was fun to get one, and also I would send whenever I had a chance to. I got one particular one that my wife said very simply, please put the fear of God in the children. By email? Write it in all caps? Dear children. They were being typical kids. And in fact, recently my son and I were laughing about what that was all about. But the, just the way we were communicating back then, which has changed so much more now today. We could have done a FaceTime call. We could some, and communication has changed so much, even in our lifetime. Well, I want you to go back 2,000 years ago when so much of the New Testament was written and even way more before that the Old Testament well, there's a guy named Paul who writes a letter, hand, gets a hand, letter handwritten, and somebody has to walk it over 100 miles from where he was in prison to the location of where the people were in the city of Colossae. And Paul learned about how the young believers in that church were doing, and in fact in that area, from a man that he invested in named Epaphras. Epaphras came told Paul how things were, and so Paul crafted the book in the Bible that we call Colossians to this letter to the people who were in Colossae. But back then, it wasn't just posted on the internet. The letter would have been read aloud to the whole congregation. So they would have been listening to this letter written by a, a spiritual hero, as it was, somebody they respected as a whole congregation when he read it. And it wasn't only to be read to the people in Colossae, though we have that book, it was actually to be read to two other churches in the same area, a gorgeous region of Turkey, <clears throat> about 100 miles in, inland from Ephesus. And those three cities were um, Colossae and Laodicea and Hierapolis. And, and it's incredible because the Internet gives us uh, the capacity, <clears throat> excuse me, to look up and see what they look like today, to maybe get an idea of what they were like back then. Um, that whole region had been hit by a number of earthquakes, so very little is left of Colossae, and some around the other cities have been rebuilt. First, you'll see photos of Colossae. Thank you for the internet resources. Can you imagine that gorgeous? And I, I would love to just say, let's just go get a plane right now, and let's all go <clears throat> for a big a road trip. And that valley is gorgeous, but and imagine that you're here, and you are, you are miles away from the guy who wrote the letter. And so in these three cities that are incredibly historic, that were, again, hit by an earthquake, uh, and a, this is along a trade route, and so there was a very much a, a busy kind of a flow from people coming from different areas. And um, the, the writer Paul was Jewish, but he was also a Roman citizen. And he knew that the challenges that were facing the people in those three cities were intense from a couple of different, couple of different directions. Clearly from the impact, by the way, those are hot springs. Sound good after a night of not much sleep last night? That's uh, right near Hierapolis. So it's a gorgeous area. 
So Paul knew as a, as a Roman citizen that the people in that area, as he was, faced pressures by the Roman Empire. <clears throat> Excuse me, but not only the Roman Empire, uh, an equally powerful uh, tug and pull toward a variety of religious forms of worship and also by the ever-present tug of our own human natures. So this letter is going to serve as our focus for this next month because we believe what was written 2,000 years ago to those young believers actually has some relevant things for us today um, in incredible ways. And because God's Word is alive and active any season of our life, but I think we'll find some things this time and maybe God will open up a door for you that will be like, oh, that was so timely. And that's the prayer, that the Holy Spirit would do that. So Paul... Um, Paul had traveled hundreds of miles, but he, and before he has this life-change experience, he's hunting down people who follow Jesus. He wants to torture them, imprison them, and kill them. Well, Paul has a complete life change. And so now Paul, who used to do that, believers who feared him are now looking to him because he loves them and encourages them, and he prays for them. Non-believers are intrigued, both in the religious world and the non-religious world, but Paul um, takes this call of God on his own life and travels hundreds and hundreds of miles. And back then, much of it was on foot if he wasn't uh, on a ship at sea. And there were dangerous travels for him. And he writes about that in some of his other letters. So this wasn't very easy for him to do. He faced his own opposition. He was beaten multiple times and he was imprisoned. And yet his faith never wavers through all of that. It is stronger than ever, and he wants everybody to know Jesus. Not the religious rituals of the day, not hope in one governing body or another, only faith in Jesus, which is what he hears about the believers are having have come to. And so he wants to write them a letter and sends it back to them, and they read it out loud. <clears throat> As Ruth Cho Simmons says in her book, Truth Filled, which was used in the women's Bible study last semester, Imagine the whole church gathered together to hear this word of encouragement from a hero of the faith. This was personal, it was special, and carried the weight of a personal visit and authority of a leader who had trained their own pastor. Now, I can't imagine what it was like for them to sit in, or maybe even stand in that congregation and hear this letter. Paul was deeply encouraged by the faith that they did have. And so he reminds them that that faith came from the truth of the good news. He says it very early in the letter. That phrase, the truth of the good news, like everything else Paul does in all of his writing, is very intentional because he knew that with a multiplicity of religious beliefs clamoring and championing themselves as true, incessantly crying out for attention, for loyalty, for sacrifice and life change there, Paul reminds them that, that, that you are believing the message that the word is true, the word of Jesus. It stands the test of time. It is spreading and producing fruit, which is lives that look like Jesus everywhere it goes, all over the world. And he's reminding them it's not just in those three cities in that region, it's everywhere. And isn't it fascinating that Paul, who's writing from Ephesus not far away, that all of that is a thousand miles from Jerusalem. So a thousand miles from where it all happened, within just a few years, the word is absolutely spreading and having an impact. So Paul continues, we have not stopped praying for you since we first heard about you. Paul is a person who absolutely prays. 
You see it in all of his letters. And if you want to have a fun theme to look to kind of just a sidetrack in your own Bible study, just go to BibleGateway.com and look up prayer and look up all the letters that Paul wrote and see who he prays for and what he prays for. And I think it's, it's incredible to know that here's this man who loved them so well. Paul himself prayed often for direction and very specifically where God would lead him to next. You find that um, particularly in the book of Acts. Paul prayed all the time for people to hear the message and to be open to the message of Jesus in a way that would transform them. That was a theme. And the other theme that you find often that we actually see in Colossians is he prays that the people who hear the message would grow and become mature in their faith. In spite of all the stuff that was pressuring them, that was a significant prayer which he prayed for them. And this is what he prays for the Colossians. He goes on. We ask God to give you complete knowledge of his will and to give you spiritual wisdom and understanding. Once again, Paul is intentional with his words because in that day, with so many beliefs claiming to have soul authority, including many who proclaimed that they had special knowledge of the world's mysteries and they were the ones to go to get that special knowledge, Paul reminds them that God is the source of it all and because of the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives, they can learn the will of God and the direction of God for their own lives. It's what Jesus promised at the Last Supper, that the Holy Spirit would guide them and would comfort them and would strengthen them. Well, by Paul writing that little bit there in Colossians, he actually just pulls the rug out from under all of those other claims to truth and authority. And he tells them as they faithfully live that out, here's what will happen in their lives. And then the way you live will always honor and please the Lord. And your lives will produce every kind of good fruit. And, while, and all the while you will grow till, as you learn to know God better and better. Once again, Paul uses that phrase, good fruit, and combines it with a maturing, growing, deepening relationship with God, which reflects that mature faith that he speaks of so often. Paul also prays, he moves a little further, that they would be strengthened with all God's glorious power so that they would have all the endurance and patience they need. Endurance and patience. Paul knows that's what they'll need as followers of Jesus, especially under the thumb of the Roman Empire. Now, on one level, for all of us, I, I don't know that it's, it's very hard for us to grasp what it would have been like to be under the Roman Empire and to be a follower of Jesus. There's a book called The Flames of Rome, written by a professor of history, I believe University of Eastern Michigan, I have it somewhere. But it's an incredible uh, compilation of names, dates, and places into novel form that takes historical facts and, and writes it in a way that you read that and, and say, man, that was, how on earth was it like? To, to, how did they do it to follow Jesus in the middle of that empire? And that book does an incredible job of that. But Paul knows that everywhere you turn, there are images of Caesar. They're everywhere. They're in the market. They're on the coins you have in your pocket. They're on the, the building and the gymnasium. If you went to the Gladiator Games, they were there at the Colosseum, on jewelry, on goblets, lamps, paintings, and more. And as if that weren't enough, there were dozens and dozens of gods and goddesses that needed to be worshipped and appeased in every area of your life or your life was going to be all messed up. 
So imagine the pressure of all of that. And there were all, this is some of the artifacts that have been found. And, uh, you know, it'd be in your pocket and you'd see. And so you've got coins, you've got uh, rings, uh, you've got images of Caesar everywhere, the different Caesars who reigned. Uh, you couldn't turn a corner without seeing them. There were temples to the various gods and goddesses, and there were uh, statues of the various gods. and It was everywhere. And it was so much a part of life there, you wouldn't even realize that the values being impringed and calling for you were having an impact on you. Worshiping these different gods and goddesses were essential when you planted, when you harvested, if you wanted rain, if you wanted sunshine, if you wanted protection over your livestock or the grain that you had in storage, victory in war, when you wanted children or prosperous life, healing, and there was even a goddess over the sewer system. Just saying. So imagine what it was like to even try to live that with everybody screaming at, did you, did you go to this festival? Did you go to this temple? Did you, um, can you imagine the weight of all that? Even remembering what all the gods and goddesses required of you, let alone the things you needed to sacrifice to appease them. People even traveled to various temples and participated in multiple festivals to do everything they can to appease the gods and goddesses so they would have a prosperous life. It was all so draining. Every facet of their life and imagination was influenced by these realities. Um, Rome was especially adept at shaping the imagination. Images of the emperor were as ubiquitous in the first century as corporate logos in the 21st century. The image of Caesar and other symbols of Roman power were literally everywhere. The sovereign rule of Caesar was simply assumed to be the divine plan for peace and order. Under such conditions, it becomes hard to imagine any life alternative. Brian and Sylvia, who wrote the book, Colossians Remix, Subverting the Empire, I think they do an, ama an amazing job of helping us see the pressures of that empire on believers back then and actually bringing it to both national pressures we feel here today under various empires or structures and let alone global, global ones. And so then Paul, in the midst of this backdrop, in the midst of all these pulls to them away from the truth that they had believed, Paul, Paul starts in 1 Corinthians 15 with this phrase. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. Now, every god and goddess had a visible image because there were statues everywhere so for people to worship and identify with. Paul comes along and says that there is one true God and the visible image is known in the person of Jesus who was seen and known by people prior to this when he came and lived among the earth. And not only was he real, Paul ramps it up even more. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. It's not the endless fickle gods and goddesses that give us what we see and sustain us as long as we do what pleases them. Not at all. Can you kind of get a sense, though, of how countercultural this statement would be if you were living in Rome at that time? But Paul doesn't stop there. 
he continues this beautiful poetic section in, in the first chapter of the letter we have by saying, he made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything that was created through him and for him, he existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Paul uses this poetic language to go back and forth with terms like thrones and kingdoms. Basically, he just wants to cover every base. There is no corner of creation. There is no ruler or no empire that is greater than Jesus, none. And as if not to put another stake in the ground, he goes on by saying, he is the beginning, the supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. Can you kind of get a feel for what Paul is doing? For the subversive nature of this message? Again, Ruth Simon says, the life that threatened the Colossians was simply the idea that Christ was not sufficient, that he alone was not enough. And so Paul sought to establish the truth in his letter that Christ is all. There were so many voices clamoring for their attention, drawing them away from Jesus, much like today, that Paul uses strong, beautiful, intentional language to reignite their, their imaginations, which were bombarded daily. And this point is driven home again in Brian and, Sheila, and uh, Walsh and Keysman's book, um, a book on Colossians this way. In a world populated by images of Caesar, who was taken to be the son of God, a world in which the emperor's preeminence over all things is bolstered by political structures and institutions, an empire that views Rome as the head in which an imperial peace is imposed, sometimes through the capital punishment of crucifixion, this poem is nothing less than treasonous. Being a follower of Jesus was incredibly radical. It flew in the face of everything around them, as Walsh and Kismet say, and they don't stop there. In fact, they use a number of examples to almost pull back the curtain for us. Though we aren't under the thumb of an empire like the Colossians were, they make a point to say that we are actually bombarded uh, by no less than they are, by various empires, structures of power uh, or an influence. My first taste of what, that, what was going on in my own life that way came in a conversation with my dad. It was so innocuous. It was, it was when I was a teenager, it was probably in the 70s. I bought a pair of Adidas, Adidas athletic shoes for 23 bucks. My mom was flabbergasted. 23 bucks? You could get these other shoes for nine. For 23 bucks, you better shower with those shoes on. You better sleep. You better never take those shoes off for 23 bucks. And then my dad sees me also wearing an Adidas t-shirt. He said, oh, did they give you that shirt? No. You paid for that shirt? Yeah. You mean you're advertising for Adidas and you paid them to advertise. It's just a shirt. In my teenage mind, I was frustrated, confused, but realizing that I had bought into a consumer way of living that none of us, most of us don't even think about today. And it is one small indicator of the way in which the systems, and I, this is nothing against Adidas. It isn't about that. It's so much bigger than that. It is one small way for me to start to pull the curtain back to say, 
In what ways are you and I being impacted by the empires, the empires and entities of our world, nationally and globally, without realizing that while it is happening in our lives, our imaginations are being formed by the logos and the companies and the governing entities in such a way that Jesus no longer has the place of supreme authority even in our lives. I was so frustrated and I was so confused, but it opened the door for me. This entire system, which, which is global and does everything in its power to buy my loyalty, never stops. It's never satisfied. In the 1970s, it was said that we saw between 516 advertisements per day, primarily billboards, newspapers, and TV. By by the 2000s, it was up to 5,000 ads a day. And as of last year, Sam Carr says it's up to 10,000 advertisements per day. For me, reading Walsh and Kismet's book opened my eyes to the way in which Paul's letter then was so liberating and revolutionary and the ways it continues to do so today. Helping me maybe open my eyes a little bit more to see the way powerful structures and organizations pull on us just as hard, thwarting our imaginations from seeing anything different, pulling Jesus off the throne and setting him aside. And so the big idea for this series is this. The pull of this world, with all of its opportunities, responsibilities, temptations, and promises, is so strong and insidious, and the word insidious to mean stealthily treacherous, even deceitful. So strong and insidious that only lives, hearts, minds, imaginations, the whole things, formed by Jesus will prevail in this life and in the next. Paul's letter to Colossians, though 2,000 years old, is just as liberating and revolutionary today, I believe, as it was back then. It pulled back the curtain. He knew it then, and he wanted the believers in Colossae to know it then, and God rescued and kept that book for us, so we know it today. Um, I offer this somewhat creative paraphrase, paraphrase of that section in Colossians for us to think about and maybe the Holy Spirit used to stir our our minds and our hearts. In an image-saturated world, a world of dehydrated and captivated imaginations, in which we are too numb to be able to dream of life otherwise, there is Jesus. He is enough. He is above it all. He is the source of liberated lives and imaginations subverting all other empires and entities, whatever you can imagine, visible and invisible, atoms and universes. In the face of claims to ultimate power and influence, in the face of so many idolatrous forces tugging at our lives, he is above it all. And it's because of what happened at a cross, a state execution, when the sentence wasn't commuted and the ones in power thought they won the day. But with outstretched arms, he defeated it all. Every empire, every idol, every god and goddess, he is above it all. That was the message for those young believers 2,000 years ago that we need to remember all of the time, even today. And I want to borrow a mental image from a guy named Bill Bright. He developed in the 1950s of a throne in the center of the core of our being. 
And on that throne was the person or the entity that was ruling our lives. And Bill's question then is the question to us today. Who is sitting on the throne being the Lord of your life? The reminder from Paul in this first part of his letter would be, is it Jesus? The supreme one. The one who brings life here and forever. And so my friends, the message this morning is to pull the curtain back. Not just on what they needed to see was pulling on them back then, but what is, is pulling on your life today? We have so many things coming at us. Some are wonderful opportunities, but so many voices calling for our loyalty and our attention. The pull of this world is so strong and so insidious. Only lives formed by Jesus will prevail in this life and in the next. And we worship now but belting out the words of the supreme Jesus in a way, Lord willing, that will refuel your heart and redirect your heart in this season.